In aviation, um, you can make an engine person an aircraft person. It's really hard to make an aircraft person an engine person. Because engines are just hard. This is the Time on Wing podcast, the podcast where we talk with leaders of the aviation industry about their path, their careers, their time on wing, as it were. With me, as always, is Garrick Deshavan, my co-host. Garrick, who are we talking to today? Hey, Courtney. Well, thanks for uh, having me on once again. Not that you have a choice, but thank you for having me on nonetheless. Um, so today we have, have no choice. <laughs> you have no, you know, you don't have a choice. We are actually very fortunate to have Jim Morrison. Uh, this is Jim Morrison, who's the chief risk officer of Avalon. Uh, Jim has actually been uh, in the industry for uh, for some time now. He's uh, he's about our age, but what he's achieved is actually pretty pretty amazing. He's been kind of, so he's had a few positions at Avalon, including uh, head of portfolio management, uh, as well as SVP of aircraft and market analysis. He's also worked uh, at CIT Aerospace as AVP of aircraft evaluation. He's worked at Bombardier uh, with our lovely host here, Courtney, uh, as uh, he's had a few roles, manager of strategy, international business development, as well as airline marketing manager. Um, obviously, Jim's done much better, but that's beside the point. Um, he is also an ISTAT certified appraiser and a licensed professional engineer. Uh, he graduated from uh, Queen's University and also from MIT. So uh, needless to say, Jim has a few more brain cells than we do. Uh, let's hope we can keep up, but it's definitely going to be a fun discussion. So, uh, Jim, uh, welcome to the podcast, and this is your time on wing. So, Jim, thanks for thanks for joining us today. Uh, we are we're definitely thrilled to have you on. I mean, it's always fun to chat with you and try to try to keep up with your way of thinking. Um, so, so thanks for taking the time. Um, we did kind of want to start with, uh, I think some of your background. I mean, obviously kind of having, uh, graduated from, you know, Queens university, uh, with a degree, I think in, uh, what is it? Engineering physics, right? Is that, is that what you graduated with? And then, then MIT, you got it. Uh, um, oh, what was the nuclear engineering program full? <laughs> yeah. Actually, Courtney, I'll have you know. I did do coursework in nuclear reactor physics. See, oh. there is a nuclear reactor in Kingston, Ontario, uh, hidden beneath a mound underneath the Royal Military College. But no, I did not do nuclear reactor physics. Didn't get a, you just did all. You took all the courses, passed all the tests. Yeah, just, just for fun. Was that? I get it. Was that on the side? Just because you were bored. For fun. <laughs> just one for fun. Yeah. Um, so, awesome. but I guess so. So you know, tell us a little bit about. I think. Um, how you got to that, right? What, what kind of started that off to, for, from you to kind of go, you know what, I think, you know, engineering, physics, and then I think for, with the MIT program, that was a master's in technology and policy, I think is, is what you graduated with, right? So, um, how, like, what was the, the mindset for you to kind of go, I want to go in that direction? Uh, and then, you know, obviously just kind of follow, follow on to that. It'd be great to kind of know how did that get you into aviation, right? How did you get there? It's a broad question to kick it off. Um, yeah, so look, it, I think it's all, all all a bit about a combination of flukes, good luck along the road, and um, and looking for challenge. 
So as a kid, my, my grandfather was actually an engineer. He's a mining engineer and he spent his career uh, looking for gold in the, uh, the Canadian Shield up north and uh, well north of uh, Thunder Bay and well north of Toronto where I grew up. Um, and so uh, even as a young kid, I had a role model in my life who was an engineer and, um, and, and made me think about what does an engineer do? And so I, I was pretty much of the opinion that an engineer drew, drove the train, essentially. With, that's my understanding of what engineers do. <laughs> yeah, they do. So, so you thought you were going to be a train engineer when you joined and you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. This, this is, is not what different. I thought. Where are the trains? <laughs> okay, so wait a minute. So. Uh, let's go back to this whole gold thing. This is fascinating. And from that, you're like, I want to drive trains. Like, yeah, that that, that's a great, that's great to think it to be like, wait, wait, hold on. There were trains while you were looking for gold. I want to do that. Like, <laughs> truly on the, so you, your, your father was in what gold mining? No, my father was uh, in uh, investments. So he he worked at Candle Life. He's chief investment officer at Candle Life. My oh, wow. grandfather was grandfather. In- I wasn't oh, listening mine. clearly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, in, in in mining, like traditionally, what we think of, or it was this. Yeah, that's pickaxe under the ground. Yeah, yeah. That's very cool um, to to kind of think you were going in that direction. And then, so what what made you kind of shift into the aviation side of things? What, what did was there a passion for aviation at some point in your life? Or was it just kind of, hey, these are the opportunities that came up, so I'm going to go the aviation route? No, look, engineering for me uh, brought together um, uh, thinking about a system from a broader perspective. Because engineers are thinking about both the analysis and the numbers and the data perspective, but of broader systems, whether that's how you design an energy system or how you design uh, a rail network or how you design uh, a mine, right? It's bringing together both that perspective about trying to achieve an outcome using uh, design and analysis and data to, to achieve that. Um, and so from engineering, I went on to uh, my first career after school was in um, aerial mapping cameras. So I actually had a career after graduating from Queens where I had the opportunity to work at a nuclear power plant, Courtney. Um, you'll be surprised to know. Um, surprised uh, and relieved. And relieved to know. <laughs> um, I, I, I then took a couple months kind of after graduating school, uh, went traveling around uh, uh, Asia for a little bit of time and uh, decided that nuclear reactors weren't for me. So um, one of my best friends growing up, his dad had started up a company back when I was actually kind of a young kid, my my kind of eight, nine, 10 year old time frame. Um, and he'd started up a company in mobile mapping systems and geomatics and using uh, inertial navigation systems on helicopters actually. To, to create mapping systems. Um, and so when I kind of came back from travels after, after, after graduating university, looking for what was my career going to be, um, ultimately he had a role open to, to work at a company called Aplanix, which is on the north side of uh, Toronto. Um, and the job was to install um, a position and orientation system. So essentially uh, an inertial measurement unit, which is gyroscopes and accelerometers, um, with a GPS on the top of an aircraft, mount that on top of a camera system, and then fly around and take pictures. So my first job out of university was installing cameras and, and that uh, navigation system on small aircraft, usually Cessna 182s up to King Airs, uh, with customers all over the world. So I got to work throughout the U.S., into Brazil, uh, traveled to Singapore, traveled to Kenya, 
uh, and uh, had you know my first interaction with both working on aircraft, working in aviation, travel around the world, and uh, working with uh, international customer base, which is cool. a lot of fun. So it sounds like you were like a like a photographer's assistant, is what it sounds like to me. But maybe it, it's a little bit more complicated than he's that. A but that he's a camera guy. He's a camera guy. So you were holding the bag, right? With the carry running around kind of when they needed you, you just, all right. Yeah. Look, Jim, the, the challenge here is like, <laughs> this is like that TV show. Uh, you know, can you explain it to an aircraft appraiser? <laughs> which is not yet. Yeah. Smaller <laughs> words. You need smaller <laughs> words. Cause I just, which, I, which ironically, uh, Jim also is an ISTAT certified, uh, appraiser. Right, so I'm we, probably missing so you a few words you would know. Are there more viewers of that TV show than your radio program here? Many. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. It's probably multiples, like the kind of multiples that people are looking for in, in our industry. You know, it's, that's, that's what, yeah, that's the difference, <laughs> but it's okay. It's all right. We, we like our two listeners. Uh, and I'll thank my daughter <laughs> later, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. So then from, from there, um, when did you decide that you kind of wanted to go, for the MIT program, uh, how did that come about? Yeah, so um, I spent about three years at Planix, uh, which was a great, great experience. Uh, and you know, the biggest lessons I learned from that one was to uh, be close to the customer, to understand what their needs are, to understand what drives revenue in a business. Um, I learned really a passion for international travel. It was my first time, you know, in a in a professional job working with customers around the world. Um, and I really enjoyed that intersection of working with a technology um, that's part of a broader economic system. Uh, uh, some of our customers would be governments who would be using the technology to do urban planning or to do infrastructure mapping. Uh, some of our customers would be um, uh, forestry companies who are managing their assets, which would be large scopes of forest products. Uh, some of our customers would be um, just making maps for other people. So I really got to see a broad cross section, but I did find in that industry that it wasn't, it wasn't my industry. I hadn't really trained in geomatics. I didn't uh, really understand the industry as well as some of my other colleagues who had spent their careers uh, and education developing and, and preparing for that. So I was looking for the next challenge. And really that's kind of been my story along the way, going into engineering to, to look for what a challenge would be finding an interesting opportunity uh, through a relationship or a, an old network to be able to find my first job at school. And then um, for MIT, they had a really interesting pro uh, program called Technology and Policy Program, which brought together these different aspects. Had a technology focused, so primarily attracted engineers, um, but as well was taking a broader lens on what an engineering system or technology has and what impact it has on political systems, on economic systems, on law systems. And so it was just a really fascinating, interesting uh, uh, perspective and a way for me to transition my career from being more of a technical expert and an engineering expert to a broader thinker. But how do we put uh, technological systems into our broader world? So essentially, how did I get to MIT? I applied and they accepted me. Cool, right? Because if you think about um, kind of, I think, probably some of the things that you're doing today, um, you know, yeah, even though you're, you're looking at I me, mean, still, you're still dealing with technology as well, right? Whether it's older technology or current technology on the aircraft side. And it is a, a geopolitical environment where 
you know, that it does affect different regions where, you know, and that's, you know, I think when you, when you think about that, um, you know, you look at the, the political landscape in terms of who's willing to buy which aircraft and why and, and why the politics are affecting one or thing or the other and who's actually building the technology to put on that airplane. Do you share that risk? All these kinds of things, uh, kind of, you know, I, I think you're probably, uh, dealing with some of the same things that you probably, uh, were learning about, you know, when you're going through MIT. I'm sure that's probably helpful in, in, in your role today. Yeah, absolutely. So my graduate thesis was on um, a game theory analysis uh, between Airbus and Boeing and what drives innovation and what drives innovation strategies in a, in a large-scale manufacturing duopoly. So given airlines really only have a choice of A or B when you get into large aircraft uh, uh, metal, what is the driver that that forces or incentivizes um, manufacturers to to innovate? And so that was the the premise of the thesis. And ultimately, the the outcome of of that body of work. And we were doing this back in the late late two thousands. So it was really right in the middle of when Airbus and Boeing were deciding whether or not to re-engine the A three twenty or the seven three seven, which have both been fantastically successful aircraft programs up to that point in time. But thinking ahead to what's the next step, what's the, the innovation driver? Um, and ultimately, in a duopoly, there's really not that much incentive to innovate unless either there's government policy that forces you to innovate, a regulatory change, unless the cost structure of the industry changes dramatically. For example, fuel prices spike dramatically and means that the customer base just requires that efficiency improvement or that economic improvement of the aircraft to incentivize innovation, or unless there's a third party that enters the market. And so ultimately, the premise of the thesis was that a third party uh, had entered the market, at the time being Bombardier with the C-Series program, uh, and that was what destabilized that duopoly and pushed Airbus and Boeing over the edge to, uh, to make a decision. And so the decision was to either do a, a, a brand new clean sheet aircraft or a re-engined aircraft. Um, and ultimately, we know how the story goes, that they both decided that the re-engined aircraft was the lowest risk, um, smaller investment, uh, and leveraged their very successful platforms to create you know, great products that uh, would go on and be the next 20 years plus of, of production. What year was that, Jim? Was this 2010 era? Yeah, so I started uh, MIT in 20, 2009, so would have done most of the bulk of the research in, in 2010. In the context of today, this is super fascinating um, and a thread I, I totally want to pull on because of all the factors you talked about kind of in that game theory, um, each one of them kind of played out. I guess 2010, it was a little after we saw peak uh, fuel prices. That was what, 2008 or so, where they kind of went crazy. Um but but kind of each of those factors uh, played out, and I know that at the time this was a conversation that that we had uh, at at Bombardier. This was before before you joined, just on whether or not Airbus and Boeing will pull the trigger. And the answer always was no. There was never any reason for them to to do that. And there were, of course, a group of us who were like, I don't know. Uh, it only takes it only takes one crazy. Not even crazy, right? It's it's still a logical decision to move forward. I mean, clearly, Airbus moved first. Um, granted, things played out not even how I think they would have anticipated it, but they've they definitely come out of this reengineering ahead. I I would I would argue, especially since 
Um, so you had A and B, and now A owns C, um, and B didn't deliver for a few years. Um, so I'm not sure how how you draw the game theory matrix of that one, but um, yeah, just the differences between kind of how it played out and how you saw it playing out. What 13 years ago now? I mean, is it how how right or wrong kind of was the the thesis at the time? Yeah, so I think what we were trying to study at the time was what were the drivers to innovate, right? So once they re-engined, we, we just called it quits, and that was the end of the project. Yeah, they're, they're done driven, so now <laughs> we don't need to guess why. <laughs> yeah, they're <Yeah>. done. <laughs> um, so how does it play out? That's, that's a, a, a great question. And ultimately, um, within each different strategy, there's different levels of, of program risk, ultimately, of both execution and delivering the final product, um, as well as market risk. Is the market there for, um, for the product that you're trying to plan so far ahead for? And so I think a couple of different drivers there. Um, the program risk of executing, you know, in our business, executing on a re-engine product is, is incredibly challenging on any aircraft product is really incredibly challenging. And that's the story of aviation manufacturing and development, which is, is so fascinating to me. Um, is that it is such a technical, technologically advanced and, uh, and high technology industry with so much program execution. And you've seen that, that it's played out. You know, for both manufacturers, for the for the good and the bad, ultimately on just executing the programs that they put on the drawing board. The second one is: is it the right product for the market? When you're trying to make decisions about where the market will be in a decade, in two decades' time, make your investment today to be able to get well ahead of that that movement and change the market. It's it's so critical. And so I think that what you'd see is that uh, Boeing has you know one of the best products in the, the, the 150 seat segment with a 737 max eight competing versus the A320. Um, but Airbus was really, has really been able to capture the, the upgaging wave into the A321 segment. So there's been that, that change in, in both the program execution and then into, well, the markets evolved as well too over the last 15 years too. And so what was the platform and what was the deck of cards that each manufacturer had to play out? At that point in time, when they had to make those critical design decisions, um, it just turns out that Airbus ultimately had more to gain from a re-engineering, and they had a, a, a larger aircraft variant of the fleet, which is where the market was was moving towards. Okay, so 2010. So in 2010, Bombardier had closed the well, then Frontier, the Republic Frontier order, which was an Airbus customer, and had Airbus move forward with the Neo kind of around that time? I can't remember. Yeah, I think it, it was, it was probably definitely being discussed with customers. I think mm-hmm. it, by memory, it was around June, July of 2011 when American made their big deal. Well, when American that. made the deal that launched the max, but the Neo was already I, 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 testing my memory here, but I thought the Neo had kind of been given the go ahead and and sign up a launch customer prior to that. Really what I'm getting to is in the in the context of B, let's pick on B a little bit because no people they don't they don't get picked on enough. Um but in the context of how this plays out, especially from the from the game theory perspective because things happen in increments and there are you know there are steps to how to how this played out. I constantly when when asked about whether or not Boeing ever should have moved forward with the max considering everything that we know now with crashes and the groundings and everything. I go back to that moment in 2010 
really kind of leading into the American uh, order. And the problem I have with with saying they took a wrong path is I don't logically see a different path from that moment. Right. It, it's it's all kind of Airbus kind of forced that path. And keep it keep in mind that right at that time as well, Boeing was still in the 787 seven, delays. Right. So they were yeah. still dealing with that, trying to deliver the first airplane that was now going on two, almost three years behind. Right. Yeah. So I think that that's something to keep in mind. And that I'm sure Boeing is probably like, ah, the, you know, it's just a, a you know, new engine option. It's only going to make it slightly better. And then I think when they had the big order, right, that's kind of what pushed them over the top. But they were, I, I would think that they were probably thinking we really should new, do a clean sheet design. But we have other things to focus on. Um, but then they were forced to be like, yeah, we can do that, too. No problem. And that's yeah, what, it's a great point, Garrett, that there's always so many decisions that go or so many factors that go into any major decision. Um, and ultimately, that's what I really love about this industry. And that's why, you know, when I talked about my own background, my story about looking for challenges, thinking about broader systems that involve technology as well as bring in. Um, the, the social aspects, the economic aspect, the political and the commercial realities about in which we need to make those decisions that, you know, Boeing back at that time in 2010 would have been dealing with, um, 77 program overruns, cost overruns, the challenge to their balance sheets. And will that program, which has turned out to be a phenomenal success, you know, it wasn't known whether that was going to be a phenomenal success. It had the order book and market appetite. But it still hadn't fully developed into the Dash 8, Dash 9, Dash 10 family that we see today. Um, and frankly, you know, re-engineering was likely the right product decision, given that the majority at that point in time, from a technology perspective, the majority of the benefit of, of the aircraft improvement efficiency was coming from the engines. It was, yes, you could invest in a whole new airframe with composite materials and, and get higher aspect ratio wings and so on, but ultimately you know, the majority of the benefit was coming from the engine technology with Pratt & Whitney on the gear turbofan, but as well as CFM really pushing the boundaries of materials to try to uh, increase um, uh, pressure ratios and increase bypass ratio to, to squeeze uh, the most you can out of an internal combustion engine. And that's worked out so well for them. But for different reasons, I think. For different reasons, yeah, I know. Yeah, well, I mean, look, I, I think you can only, you get, what's the saying, you can only get so much out of, I don't know. Pick pick your favorite fruit, but uh, right? I mean, and is that what you're looking for? Something like that, yeah. Uh, whatever that's. I don't know. You know, I'm I'm French. I don't know these these U.S. <laughs> sayings. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but no, but it's true, and and I think that's that's the challenge that all engine manufacturers have had, right? Is is that they're the market is looking for, you know, so much efficiency out of these products, um, but it's it's a give and take, right? You can kind of go, and I think we're. When you when you talk to the OEMs today, I think they're finally you know they're they're, they're kind of looking at everybody going you know it's we told them and like we could do this but it's gonna we're gonna have to give up something on on the back end you know or, or there's gonna be some give and take and and yet you know I think uh, it just kind of ever the market just kind of went yeah but we want it all so you need to do it all and I think we're seeing the issues now develop based on the fact that they. They try to get there, um, and you know, I, it, it just it is challenging. I mean, you're you're trying to get so much out of these engines uh, with so much technology. I, I think it it shouldn't be a surprise that you know they've had all these issues, um, and but you know, it's it's all a kind of a give and take, and but everybody wants to just take. Um, so, 
So we've we've fast forwarded through the program design. Jim went and did a bunch of things at different companies. And then uh, one of the airplanes didn't do so hot, stopped producing, couldn't fly for a bit. And and now we're on the backside, right? You have in-service. We're, we're, we're at like chapter seven of this 20... 20 chapter book on, on the new chapter seven is a good, good term to use since it usually refers to liquidation, but that's just, okay. I'm sorry. You know, we're yeah. at chapter 11. <laughs> <laughs> chapter 11 of this 20 chapter book. Wait, that not work? Yeah. That, well, Wrong so, choice of words, Courtney. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we're not so insinuating here, here we anything are, for anybody's here listening. We are midway through the, the book on, on kind of the narrow bodies. Is that better, Eric? And uh, really kind of what you're describing is the, the in-service challenges that, that both of these aircraft are having mostly from, mostly from the engines, um, which really kind of stem from that original philosophy that Jim was talking about on, okay, we can take advantage of, of new engine technology to put it on kind of older airframe technology. And here today, we're seeing engines basically just burning themselves, Um you know, time on wing to use a term that should now be in everybody's vocabulary um, for the engines is is not uh, producing the the length of time that that the expectations were. I think that's that's the key difference here. These the CFM fifty six, the V twenty five hundred, these engines were known to just keep running even back to the JT eights. Um, the new engines, not so much. Uh, and I guess the, the question, the question for you, Jim, fast forwarding through all of those things that, that have happened on, on these programs to the challenges that we have today, which, you know, I'm oversimplifying to, to say our engines on, on this, this segment in particular. What are you looking for or how are you looking for this to play out in? In the future, is this is this going to iron itself out? Do we expect do we expect some longer term kind of program challenges? Is there a new paradigm we have to consider when we're when we're talking about the the overhaul times of engines? I mean, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, look, I think that in aviation, um, you can make an engine person an aircraft person. It's really hard to make an aircraft person an engine person because engines are just hard. And ultimately, you know, Cordy, you and I, we chose the aircraft world. It's <laughs> too hard for us. <laughs> they turn, they spin. They took the easy route. They're, they took the easy hot. route. Got it. Got it. All right. We um, now we know more about you know. I will so, point but, out but though engines, that an airplane can glide without an engine, but an engine can't fly without an airplane. So there's that. Have you tried? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a good point. I haven't necessarily tried. <laughs> But um, I'd say, look, engines are hard, and the technology that's been brought to market is just unbelievable, right? And the fact that you have, um, you know, on the narrow body side, at least Pratt Whitney, uh, CFM, uh, taking different design philosophies, mixing together different technologies that have been developed over decades of time that have cost billions of dollars to bring to market, it's really, it's really miraculous, almost. And, you know, there's no engine that enters service and within the first three, four, five, six years um, has reached its mature time on wing, has reached its mature period of durability and so on. So the fact that CFM and, and Pratt are working through the issues that they're working through now is just, it, it's just part of the game ultimately. 
and their ability to adjust and their ability to, to uh, uh, scramble on the ground every day, find solutions for airlines and operators and keep aircraft in the air is, is remarkable as well, too. It demonstrates the need for the global uh, support network, uh, for a, a global network of, of, of allowing airlines to do what they do every day, which is fly and generate seats and generate revenue and take people from, uh, from origin to destination. Um, so I think the engine manufacturers, they're going to get through this. They're maturing a technology that's really complicated, really hard to do. And uh, it's bringing such efficiency to the market that ultimately it enables the next stage of growth for the aviation industry. Uh, yeah, I like that I, answer. Garrick, you like yeah, it? What, I, what I like you think it about too. engines? They're hard. They're hard. <laughs> engines are hard. Yeah. <laughs> From the guy, by the way, who turned down a job as a nuclear engineer, I'm, I'm probably... <laughs> <laughs> embellishing that a little bit, but whatever. Well, yeah, you were gonna you were gonna make uh, nuclear reactors, right? That that's what it was. No, it was uh, it was to be Homer Simpson. <laughs> <laughs> Dope. Yeah. Um, so so actually, and, and I just uh, make one one comment, which you know, based on I think Jim something you said before in terms of kind of your your background and your education in terms of looking at. You know, how do you, and it's, you mentioned it on the, both airframers, but uh, on the engine side as well, right there, how do you look at a, a product that's going to uh, basically bring you into the future for the next 10, 15, 20 years, right? And I think that's the challenge. I think that the, I think the engine OEMs all have had in terms of you're spending billions of dollars into this new technology. And how do you design something that you can continue to improve and evolve over the course of, you know, the next generation of product potentially, right? Because you don't necessarily want to have to redo this every time somebody comes up and says, hey, we want a new airplane. So can you just come up with a new engine for us? Um, and I think that, you know, each each manufacturer seems to go in, in different directions, right? Pratt kind of chose the, they looked at their existing product line and said, you know what, let's take a gamble and let's come up with a, you know, kind of a whole new platform that's going to be able to bring us into the future by being able to, uh, you know, to kind of, Go, go bigger if we need to. Whereas I think CFM kind of went, look, why don't we take what we've done, which has worked out so well, and just try to eke out whatever little bit of efficiency we can by using these different different materials. Um, and, but they did, and so, too. And right? they did, like absolutely. They were successful right? at doing that. Yeah, very different philosophies, same kind Correct. of result, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's still it's still a, a hefty investment, um, you know, looking at kind of, Ultimately, well, you know, will this fly on this airplane and maybe the next one, right? Because we, we can't afford just to be spending billions every 10 years or every 15 years when somebody comes up and says, hey, look, we, we want the next best thing now. And so how do you, how do you take that into account? And I think that, you know, we're, we're seeing that play out today. Uh, I agree with you that, you know, I think, look, the, the, all the manufacturers have, you know, plenty of very talented people that kind of, understand what they're supposed to be doing. And, and as you say, it, it is not easy to, to design these things to uh, to work exactly the way that everybody wants them to. Um, and so I think it's just going to, you know, take time to get there, but they'll, they'll figure it out. Um, I think the, my, my, I guess my next question to you would be, you know, what, I think what drives the next level of innovation, right? What's going to, what's it going to take for, for, you know, all three of the engine OEMs who say they've got, you know, they're working on the next thing, but what's going to be the trigger for them to say, you know what, yet yeah, we're we're willing to now spend another several billion dollars to come up with the next product that's going to fly for the next 15 to 20 years. 
Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Um, I think it comes back to the discussion we had before, that it's either a regulatory change that forces technology innovation. It's um, an economic, you know, driver that forces, uh, you know, the operating economics to have to take a step change. Otherwise, the customer base isn't able to operate and profitably anymore. Or, um, or it's, uh, it's a new entrant that, that finds a way to do things differently or uh, changes, changes the game. So on the regulatory front, you know, a lot of the regulatory changes coming around the sustainability issue today around what is, what is really the cost of carbon and how is that being uh, paid for by, uh, by stakeholders who are reliant on carbon emissions for their, for their industry and for their business. And so you're seeing a lot of that movement coming today from regulatory change in the European Union, whether that's mandate, ma- mandating uh, uh, SAF utilization, sustainable aviation fuels, which will likely come at a higher cost point, at least the start, than traditional kerosene, or whether that's uh, implementing taxes, carbon taxes, or cap-and-trade systems, such as the, um, the ETS, the Emission Trading Scheme in, in, in EU. So regulatory front, the driver is likely to be something about uh, governments changing the game about what efficiency has to be or, or, or what is the energy source for aviation to maintain its license to operate into the future. Um, on the economic front, you know, it's probably somewhat uh, correlated in the fact that if you're increasing the cost of energy for aviation, increasing the cost of fuel, well, we better be burning less of it to be able to create the same output to create to create aircraft that can transport from origin to destination, carry more passengers, uh, and maintain a cost point for those passengers that's affordable and continues to grow our market and maintain those social and economic benefits that we've had for so long. Um, and then from you know the last one, is there a third mover that's going to enter the market that ultimately forces the incumbents to, to innovate, to be able to keep up? You know, it's really hard to see that happening today where we sit. Just given, you know, five years ago, we would have talked about new entrants from Russia, new entrants from China, whether that's Irkut with the MC-21 or Comac with the C-919. Um, you know, those programs right now are, are definitely focused on their domestic markets. But, uh, but we'll see, right? Ultimately, we'll see whether there is um, a third player that comes out from uh, a, a, another sector or decides to grow up. The one question that we kind of blaze past that I, I have since answered because I've seen uh, your pinky ring um, from <laughs> your your engineer. Um, Garrick, do you know? Do you know about the Canadian engineer pinky ring? Uh, no, I do not. Yeah. So I'll Jim, I'll, I'll let you tell tell the story. But um, no, it's a legit thing. <laughs> yeah, you're putting me on the spot. Um, so there's the a secret society. In- there is a secret society. Nice. Well, not secret anymore. It's on the Time on Wing podcast. Yeah, it's still secret. It's still secret. <laughs> okay. I'll let your two listeners in on the secret. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so when you graduate uh, engineering school in Canada, you receive uh, a ring. It's called the iron ring that you wear on uh, supposed to be your drafting hand. So I'm left-handed, so I'm actually wearing it on the wrong hand. It's on my right but um, it, it's supposed to remind you uh, of your duty as an engineer uh, uh, to society to, to essentially don't screw up, right? You, you have, as, a, as an engineer, you're making designs that people rely on to be safe, whether that's an aircraft system, whether that's designing a road or a bridge. 
and that your duty is to uh, be ethical, to work with the highest integrity, and to to not make mistakes. Ultimately, because that could be a, a public uh, a public risk or or in fact a safety. And so the story goes that back in I want to say the 1800s, maybe 1870s, um, there was a, a New York-based engineer who was uh, did the design for a bridge that crossed um, the St. Lawrence River. I want to say around Quebec City. Maybe getting my facts wrong here. But ultimately, the bridge, the design uh, had a had a had a fault in it, and the bridge collapsed. And ultimately, people, uh, I, you know, public was harmed in, in in the collapse of the bridge. And so the story goes that they took the iron from the bridge out of the river and crafted the rings that all the engineers from Canada uh, wear to remind themselves of their their duty to public. It's really cool. That's very cool, and that that explains why I don't have a ring as an appraiser. That. That's that's right there. You know, I mean, that would be cool to have an appraiser ring, though. I, I think that'd be kind of, uh, yeah, yeah. But we but give you, I, you we know. give you a, a pin, Derek. Yes, that's school. right. But that's that's why we have a pin and not a ring. <laughs> no, it's a it's a middle finger <laughs> ring, Garrick. For every time you it's, use your middle finger, a, you're, you're right. reminded. No, but it's it, it's a pin because ultimately we are the little pricks of the industry that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is true. <laughs> We oh, are goodness. those. Yeah, that's right. We just throw okay, little so, reminders. <laughs> Jim, now after that little uh, sidebar, which I love that story. I think it's a fascinating story. Um, yeah, absolutely. That, I didn't know I, that. I that's, only Canadian yeah. engineers do. Is that right? I, I think so. Yeah. 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 That's very cool. Um, that is a very, very cool story. But but yeah. you had mentioned SAF. It's something that I'm fascinated about. And I do remember through conversations of the past um, having some quite in-depth conversations with you on just the viability of SAF. Um, of course, the big challenge always kind of being infrastructure and, and producing the feedstock. Um, you know, what's, you know, now here in, in at, towards the end of the first quarter of 2023, um, kind of where, where do things stand on SAF? I'm not, I'm not looking to you as an expert, just as somebody who knows mm-hmm. more than, than me. Well, about a lot of things, but SAF in particular, yeah. So where are we? Um, I think when you when you think forward uh, ahead to the industry, if um, if we all agree that we have a responsibility as aviation to take carbon out of our operations, um, what are the pathways to get there? So yes, there's improvements that can be made on operations, which is usually you know six to ten percent of carbon could be removed by just flying fewer hours in the air to transport the same passengers by improving uh, air traffic control and. And, and flight routings and so on. Um, so there, there is something to get there, but we've been trying to do that for 20 plus years with uh, various programs in the US and Europe and so on. Um, so it's challenging. It has its own issues there. We can uh, develop um, you know, improved engines and improved airframes that create uh, aircraft that just burn less fuel. Uh, so we had a, a discussion there about re-engineering and the challenging challenges of bringing new, new technology to market. Uh, both from execution as well as uh, in-service performance and getting the same durability out of, out of new technology as you'd expect out of, out of the incumbent uh, uh, aircraft and engines. Or, or we can change the power source. So if we change the energy source, what are the pathways to do so? Uh, so in the industry, there's been a lot of talk about hydrogen as a future uh, energy source and storage system. Um, and then the other one uh, that mostly talked about would be sustainable aviation fuels. And SAF is, you know, look, there's a broad spectrum of pathways. I think that today there's probably at least 11 different pathways that are certified 
to get um, from either uh, a bio-based uh, feedstock into uh, SAF or other mechanisms, uh, whether e-fuels, to get into uh, a, a liquid fuel that is essentially chemically the same as kerosene. And so when you're producing SAF through those various pathways, you can either be reliant on um, feedstock, which would be carbon-based materials, whether that's plants or crops, trees, forest waste, fatty oils, waste oils. So there's a number of different feedstocks that can be used to, to go through a chemical process uh, to become uh, Gen A equivalent kerosene from a chemical perspective. Or you can actually take carbon, whether that's carbon emissions from a factory or really uh, carbon out of the atmosphere, um, and then combine that with hydrogen, take hydrogen, either that's from water or from natural gas, although using natural gas to create e-fuels doesn't make the most sense. So primarily taking um, hydrogen through electrolysis, which is basically putting a lot of electricity um, through water to create hydrogen, combine that with carbon, and all of a sudden you can make an e-fuel, which is jet A equivalent kerosene. Um, so many different ways to get there. The challenge is that you know the lowest hanging fruit, the lowest cost way to do that would be by using energy-dense uh, waste oils um, to do so. And we're doing that today. So around a tenth of a percentage point of all jet fuel that's produced and used today in the world is would be uh, a bio-based fuel, um, uh, uh, jet A equivalent uh, sustainable aviation fuel. But to grow that from 0.1% to 2% or 5% or 35% or 65% is really, really challenging. Because ultimately, there's only so much avail availability of waste oils to be able to make that conversion process work. So once you move off of that uh, lowest cost feedstock, you get into different um, uh, 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 waste crops or, or waste um, forestry products that um, takes a different process, essentially to convert to alcohol first and then to convert into SAF which has its own energy requirements, its own industrial capacity requirements, its own uh, cost requirements as well, too. And then ultimately, to get to a power-to-liquid uh, perspective, where you actually take electricity with water, take carbon either from direct air carbon capture or through an industrial source that you can't abate, um, is higher up the technology curve um, and further out into the future. So the challenge ahead of us is how do you build that production capacity to take the feedstocks that we know about today and to build the, both the technologies um, as well as the capacity to take uh, to make SAF and other pathways into the future? And how do you create the right investment environment to attract capital to do so, uh, as well as to, to ramp up that capacity as fast as we can? And ultimately, in the, the US and Europe, you know, there's there's targets set to try to get to about 5% overall, overall kerosene requirements by 2030 to be sustainable aviation fuels through any of the different pathways. Uh, but it's really challenging. So IATA estimates that it'll be about $250 billion of capital required to create um, the SAF refining capacity to be able to meet those targets. And ultimately, it only ramps up from there, with the EU targeting around two-thirds uh, of, of overall jet fuel consumption by 2050 to be a sustainable aviation fuel. So it's going to take a lot of cooperation between industry to bring the technologies to market, uh, between capital providers to provide the capital that's needed to create that capacity, and between governments and policymakers to create the frameworks in place that ultimately SAF is not cost efficient today with jet fuel. So from a business investment case, 
I, it doesn't make economic sense to be paying higher amount for the fuel that you burn in your aircraft than what your competitor may be burning in their aircraft uh, based on traditional kerosene type fuels. So um, there needs to be a policy framework around uh, uh, the, the incentivization to create SAF and attract capital and to start a virtuous circle where investment follows the technology and creates the capacity to, to decarbonize aviation. Okay, so I want I want to set a scene. So ten years from now, we're we're having our three hundredth time on wing podcast, right? In in twenty thirty three, five five hundredth, five hundredth, five hundredth, five hundredth, three hundred. Yeah, we're gonna do. And that, so. okay, so <clears throat> so we start the podcast. Garrick puts his teeth in and asks the question. Uh, so where are we today? <laughs> what do you see? You like that, Garrick? You seem I to like, like that. that. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's nice. In 10 years time. Now, I realize in the broad in the spectrum of really what we're talking about in, in terms of sustainability. I mean, you know, 2050 is kind of the the big the big go get at this point. But let's just look at the next 10 years in 2033. Where where do you realistically expect, given the trajectory of today? I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but but realistically, based on what we've been able to accomplish, where where will we be in 2033? Yeah, I think I think the targets and the ambition is to be ten percent of jet fuel to be SAF by that point in time. I think it's totally achievable. It's totally achievable. The feedstock's available, the technology is available. What it becomes now is a capital and a policy framework that attracts the capital to create that production capacity. And the and the capital requirements, the uh, I'm looking for the order of magnitude because really what I'm getting to is a conversation that you've probably already forgotten about. I don't remember when it was, but the point you made was we all kind of stop at the capital requirements because it's a big number. But in the context of public projects, um, you know, power sources, just the oil industry, uh, the oil and gas industry, um, it, it's truly not not that much in, in those in those contexts. So ultimately, if um, if Courtney's running an airline and Garrick's running an airline, right? And Courtney's uh, taking low-cost fuel from from Texas, from the oil fields of Texas, and you're paying $2 a gallon. And Garrick's up in New England, um, and he's taken uh, SAF uh, imported from Canada, um, and it's costing you $6 a gallon, and you're both flying back and forth, right? So if you're going from Hartford down into into Dallas, Courtney's uh, uh, paying $2 a gallon, Garrick's paying $6 a gallon, I mean, who do you think wins that game? The I like the response win. because <laughs> you win. Well, yes, I like I like any hypothetical where I win. Just to be clear, um, but I think I, I think the unknown player in the room that we're really kind of talking about here is the Middle East, the Middle Eastern carriers. Right? They can literally suck jet fuel out of the ground. I mean, after doing some stuff with it, um, you know, this is a global a global challenge. Uh, both on the carbon side, but then also on, you know, these assets move. Um, that's kind of the whole point mm-hmm. of the aviation industry. So even though it's much cheaper for me to get gas in Texas, which, by the way, I think I saw two ninety six a gallon on, on the way home, oh, if, if that matters. Yeah, um, it does matter. Yeah. Look, wow. we need to save the planet. But, man, that cheap gas is really kind of nice. Yeah. And that's why it takes, you know, it takes the third player in the room, which is is the regulatory arm right. or the policy initiatives. To say, yeah, Courtney, yeah, it, it costs you two dollars a gallon for 
for the fuel, but now you've got to pay a $4 tax for the carbon that you emitted or vice versa of here, right. here's an incentive for you, Garrett, that you are cost equivalent because, you know, we're, we're the government and the policymakers are overcoming that externality of which carbon emissions is. It's something that has been priced into the economy um, appropriately so that it creates the incentive to decarbonize aviation and creates the regulatory and economic framework in which all players are incentivized to do so. And if those policy initiatives are, are set in place, capital is going to flood in because ultimately it's the, mm-hmm. it's the right thing to do for the industry. Yeah. And yeah. It's, it's what allows us to continue to uh, grow aviation and continue to connect more markets and more people around the world. Yeah, and, and which, I mean, in, in theory, right, over time, the carbon taxes should, should continue to increase, right? As, as you start, uh, and that's what incentivizes people to then put their investment towards, you know, more SAF or, or the creation of, of SAF, right? So I, I do have one one quick thing. Uh, I guess if you're, uh, let's say, you know, if, if you put on your OEM hat, I'm going to I'm gonna do the same with mine as well. Oh, oh I'm going to put on my, my OEM hat. Um, if we put those on, um, then... I guess within those 10 years, right, what what do you foresee them doing over the next 10 years, right? And it's not, obviously, we're not trying to, to, to get you to say, oh, yeah, this is what they should do. What do you think they will do in terms of, you know, how, how do you how do you deal with the, the current, you know, environmental challenges uh, on top of the, the technical issues that they are having to be able to continue to evolve and grow their products over the next, at least the next 10 years? Oh, it's a, it's a fascinating time in the industry to be um, thinking about product strategy and, and the OEMs. And they're thinking about all the different pathways in which they can innovate and, and bring new products and, and, and solutions to market, right? Um, ultimately, when you go by, back and talk about what's the right engine, what's the right aircraft combination, you know, at this point in the cycle, at this point in the industry, we need to think differently around that it's probably not going to be the same solution as it was in the past. I mean, that's why we spent a lot of time talking about staff. You know, I'm a I'm an aircraft guy. I'm not a, a, a liquid fuels guy. But ultimately, we all had to understand what are the, the different um, trajectories for the industry and where will technology take us and what's going to be the best for our, our industry, our companies, as well as our world. Um, so, you know, you hear Airbus and Boeing talking a lot about investigating and exploring SAF with using a partnership approach by thinking about different uh, network of of technology pathways as well as opportunities to, to bring SAF capacity to market. Uh, you think you're hearing a lot about new technologies, whether that's um, airframe related or engine related technologies. Um, you know, CFM is talking about the open rotor concept, which is back to the de Havilland hats you're wearing today. Uh, we've had open rotor for, for about 50, 60 years at this point in time. Why don't we speed them up and put them on jets uh, as opposed to keep them on, on slower, lower range aircraft? Um, so there's going to be uh, incredible opportunity over the next decade, over the next two decades, to think about wholesale architecture changes, uh, whether that's you know a uh, uh, high aspect ratio wings on airframes with new tech, with new materials that create lighter, more durable, uh, more flexible uh, wings that uh, tune to the different uh, air conditions at any point during the the flight cycle. Um, whether you're thinking about um, you know, whatever else, uh, new, new radar or sonar detection systems that allow you to identify, um, different patterns in the air ahead of you to be able to optimize your flight routing, to limit contrails, to be able to, uh, optimize flight paths in a way that we can use today's technology, 
uh, from an aircraft engine integration and squeeze out more efficiency just by flying smarter and planning smarter through, through the airspace that we, we have. So there's a tremendous amount of opportunities from digital side, from uh, new energy sources side to aircraft engine combinations, but it's going to take time to figure out. So ultimately, you know, a 10-year horizon in our industry is almost too short to see which way it will go. So what we can do, what we need to do is explore all the different pathways, uh, figure out, uh, be explorers, uh, be experimenters, be innovators, and uh, figure out which one works. And then once once we have a good good understanding, uh, be brave to take the right bet. I do kind of want to bring it back to the to the leasing world and the time that you've spent at Avalon. So just kind of getting back into some of the things that you've done. Um, you were on the sales side as well as, as well as the strategy side at Bombardier. Sorry about that. You went into aircraft uh, evaluation at CIT Aerospace. Then it was kind of on the aircraft, the the portfolio management and the market analysis side um, when CIT was acquired by Avalon. And now you moved over to become the chief risk officer, um, which is, which is a whole other kind of segment. I, I, I list all of those recent experiences that you've had in the context, again, back on sustainability and with Avalon, which by the way is for those who don't know, you certainly should Avalon literally like the color is green. And I think that's, that's got to be on purpose um, because of the sustainability efforts that, that Avalon is, has been considering. But how do you look at sustainability through the lens of an aircraft lessor? What is Avalon doing uh, in this space? I, I'm, I'm curious your, your thoughts on that. Yeah, so in my current role as chief risk officer, um, you know, it's, it's a broad mandate. It's a broad role to really be thinking ahead to what are the key trends and forces in our industry um, what are the opportunities in the markets that we play in? Uh, what are the opportunities in the markets that we don't play in? And how can we grow and capture those? Um, as well as in the horizon, you know, what, what are those risk factors that may, may come and hit us or, or may come and harm our, our industry or our business and position ourselves and our company to be able to, uh, to, to seize, seize the upside and, and mitigate the downside ultimately. And so I, I oversee both our portfolio strategy and what our, our asset strategy is for within our portfolio of 500 aircraft. What are the aircraft types we invest in today? Which ones do we want to invest in tomorrow? And how are we managing the residual value implications of that portfolio? Um, I, I have a team that works for me that's thinking about uh, counterparty risk and how do we underwrite new transactions with airlines? Um, how do we uh, uh, understand their business models deeply and be able to, to pick the right winners, ultimately back the right winners and fuel their, their business growth into the future. Um, and I also get the fun of uh, looking at um, uh, internal audits and compliance issues to think about operationally, are we protecting our business for how we function, given, given that Avalon's a large issuer of uh, debt in the capital markets. So part of crossing all of those um, uh, pillars of my portfolio is sustainability. And it is thinking about one of these longer term trends about the industry, how does that impact the assets that we invest in from a residual value uh, retention perspective? How is that going to drive behavior amongst the manufacturers? And what assets and aircraft and engine types are they going to bring together in the future? And how are our airlines going to be positioning themselves to be able to both protect their business model, models within uh, uh, a world which is increasingly focused on carbon, the cost of carbon, as well as our environmental impact as an industry uh, and ultimately find ways to uh, to grow, to continue to grow their businesses in our industry into the future world. 
So from an aircraft lessor perspective, I think that you look, we're, we're a key part of the overall aviation ecosystem. Uh, uh, sustainability is a key trend for us, both to look for new markets to play in. So for example, we, uh, we took a bet on a partnership with Vertical Aerospace out of the, out of the UK, which is trying to bring uh, to market a, a four-seater electric uh, vertical takeoff and landing aircraft, which is an entirely different market than we've ever competed in. We are, our core business is on narrow body, wide body aircraft. Uh, this is a small aircraft that would be enable urban air mobility, but ultimately it would enable a new way of, of mobility, air mobility with zero emissions, which is pretty exciting to think about. That if we could do that with a four seat aircraft, why can't we do that with a 19 seat aircraft or a 30 seat aircraft and find ways to grow that technology up into, uh, to the broader aviation markets? We're thinking about uh, sustainable, sustainable aviation fuel. So we launched a study uh, last year with partners at Boeing, with Sky Energy based out of Amsterdam, as well as a local group uh, within Ireland called Sustainable Flight Solutions and uh, one of our shareholders, Oryx Aviation Systems, to, to think about SAF and can we make SAF reality in Ireland by launching a feasibility study in Ireland to bring uh, an economical uh, SAF production facility uh, at the heart of aviation finance. Um, as well as really the center of aviation in Europe, if you think about the success and history and heritage of, of Irish aviation. Um, and we're thinking about uh, uh, broader opportunities as well, too, from a full life cycle perspective of the assets that we own. How are we thinking about extending the life of, of the aircraft and the engines that we own, both through our, our passenger to freighter conversion programs, as well as how are we maximizing both the value of the assets but as well as ensuring their second life, whether that's through our consignment programs that we do to, uh, to, to find second life for used serviceable material in the market. So we're really thinking across the spectrum, um, and I think it's really core to our business model going forward. When you, when you think about the, the leasing business um, and the fact that, you know, especially in, in this day and age where, where technology kind of evolves you know, fairly quickly, I, I think it, it does it in spurts, but it does evolve fairly quickly. And so you look at the the aircraft leasing model, which is, I think nowadays, kind of looking at, you know, 10, 12, 14 year terms, depending on the asset. Um, so how do you, you know, how do you kind of mitigate the those potential, you know, changes in the future when you've got such long term initially, uh, but yet these are still 25 plus year assets. And so how, you know, how do, you, do you think, I guess my, my question is, do you think that the the leasing business needs to evolve into something else to be able to handle the changes in, in technology that's coming to be able to better handle the, the residual value challenges. I think that could be coming as, as that technology comes into play. I mean, technology obsolescence is a, is a key risk that lessors have really developed a core competency around managing. You think about that transition in the late 90s from the 77 Classics into the NGs, um, you know, the lessons learned uh, from past cycles is ultimately when there is a technology uh, transition, it's usually uh, the next downturn in which, uh, it was, that's really impacted on residual values of the aircraft. Um, so, you know, technology transition has been core to our business model uh, since the start. And ultimately, uh, we've just gone through a full decade of technology transition um, where just about every single program that Airbus and Boeing manufacture or develop in Brayer as well has been refreshed, renewed, revitalized. We have new engines on the, all the narrow body aircraft. 
We have clean sheet wide bodies that are vented service. We have a clean sheet in the small narrow body segment with A220 um, and a, a pretty much fully revised and reimagined E2 as well competing in that space too. So from all the way from the 100-seat aircraft up to, up until the, the 500-seat aircraft with the 777X, within a span of you know, 15, 16 years, every single aircraft got a complete makeover. And so what that does do is it means that the aircraft that are being delivered today are really best in class. They have the greatest, uh, latest and greatest technologies on them. They're burning 15 to 20% less fuel than the past generation that they're replacing. Uh, and probably 30 to 40% than the generation before if, if, there's, if there's many of those left. And so for the runway forward from technology obsolescence perspective, it is pretty long. Ultimately, this is a decade. Um, the life cycle of products in this industry is measured in decades. Um, so I wouldn't be too concerned at all about uh, taking delivery of a 737 MAX or an A320neo today because those are the best-in-class aircraft for the foreseeable future. Now, ultimately, um, as we get closer to that point in time, as the manufacturers and different stakeholders throughout the industry are exploring different technology pathways, when it's time to be brave and make those bets, you know, that's a signal from an aircraft lessor to be just be aware and about trying to be part of that uh, part of that opportunity, uh, back the right winners, and be part of that that part of the production cycle when there are some supply constraints, when it is a new product coming to market. That when a new product meet, uh, matches the technology with the market opportunity, it creates a fantastic investment case. And so that's part of our strategy, just to be uh, really aware of what's happening in the, in the industry, uh, partnering together with players to uh, to explore the technology pathways forward, and then to be poised to uh, take advantage when that opportunity comes along. Yeah. And, and I guess ultimately, nobody really... Nobody knows. Nobody has a crystal ball, right? So you don't know how you know how the next downturn will will impact the industry. I mean, I don't think anybody would have guessed that we'd be in the current environment today based on the last, you know, the the, the pandemic, right? I mean, Bill, I, I think Bill everybody. Did. Well, you know, I guess not. Not every. I'm sure he has a crystal ball, um, but uh, he was. He, I'm sure he was able to buy one from somebody. But um, <laughs> no, but it's true, right? Because I mean, I, I think nobody probably foresaw. The not only the you know the current challenges that we're seeing on the new side where you've had uh, you know production delays and you've had techno you know the technology issues and uh, that ultimately I think everybody was ramping up to you know ultimately start you know retiring the the NG and CO fleets um, but now we're seeing kind of a you know that that potential third life out of the uh, out of those airplanes especially some of the older airplanes that we wouldn't have expected before. And so, so yeah, so I think from that standpoint, you just, you never know ultimately how things are going to be, uh, impacted by, by the, the current downturn. So we'll, we'll see what happens during the next round. Um, I, I would expect that, you know, the lessors today are probably looking at, you know, their, their existing fleet of NGs and, and CEOs is kind of like, look, this is kind of the, uh, our, our last opportunity to potentially extract whatever revenue we can out of these, these aircraft, but we have to look at the future to be able to, Kind of have a portfolio that's more, uh, you know, heavily weighted towards the the I guess the current technology airplane to make sure that you know we mitigate some of that risk as we enter into the next potential downturn. Oh sure, Eric. I mean, from a new technology perspective, you know, Avalon Suite, we're going to be our, we have a commitment in place to be seventy five percent new technology aircraft by twenty twenty five. So ultimately, uh, the last generation aircraft, as we just do our normal course of business through depreciating assets on our books, as well as continuously uh, trading portfolios of assets, 
uh, and managing the, the end of life uh, phase of, of aircraft, um, we're naturally growing very quickly to be very heavily weighted towards new technology aircraft. And ultimately, that's what's delivering today. So that's where the opportunities are in the market. No, I just wanted to say, look, thanks for coming on. Uh, fascinated. The the only problem I have with this podcast is there's probably about another three hours worth of just fascinating conversation we, we didn't even touch on. Yeah, um, absolutely. Just in the market, where we are. I know we've got a lot of questions on here about, you know, COVID, the one, you know, the greatest risks we see going forward. So um, regardless, we're going to have to have you back because I just think there's a lot of great conversation to have. Um, but thank you for, for spending some time with us. Um, thanks for choosing aviation rather than nuclear power. Yeah. I mean, you know, you could, you could also have gone into gold mining. I mean, it's so cool. It's, it's pretty good today. I'm based on a, you know, dollar per ounce, but I don't know. I don't know, you know, but you chose aviation. So you guess you're stuck with us, unfortunately, but, uh, yeah, but definitely thank you for, for making the time for us today. Um, it's always great to chat with you and kind of hear your views on, on what's going on. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, really a pleasure to be on. I, I listened to a couple of your past podcasts. I noted that you were, you needed to go down the tiers for the quality of your guests. So I appreciate we, that. Uh, we are definitely looking for less me. successful people. Uh, we're still yes. looking, we're still looking because, uh, you know, luck year, <laughs> you know, we're, that's the problem. We, we know too many successful people. That's all right. We'll get yeah, there. At some every point. time we reach out to them, they're like, who's this? <laughs> yeah, it that's happens. right. Was that a question or a statement? I know. I was just kind of hoping he'd jump in and be like, man, Courtney, that was super smart. I can't believe you said that. <laughs> uh, and uh, that's how we renamed the podcast Open Mouth Insert Foot. Yeah. That's kind of a good podcast name, come to think of it. Open Mouth Insert Foot. Yeah. <laughs>